0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Turn to the book of Ephesians. If you do not have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high. One of these fine gentlemen will make sure that you get one. We do believe it's important that you be able to follow along with us in the Word of God. And if you do not own a Bible, this Bible is a gift from us to you. Um, it may not be quite as nice as those ESV study Bibles are, but it is a uh, um, our gift to you. It's the, the Word of God, no matter what format it comes in, and we pray that those Bibles would um, lead you into a deeper and more meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, la, la 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 Hey Wayne, can you do me a favor? Like, I think these aren't on right here. They're what? All I got was, oh, the breaker's off. Oh, sweet. It's a rental. What are you going to do? Ephesians chapter one. And we're going to be beginning a great, great book. I am excited to teach this. This is one of the greatest books in the entire Bible. But now I understand we always say this, don't we? Every time we start, we go, this is the best book of the Bible. I'm so excited to teach that we start to sound the same. I know I said it in the Gospels, I said it in Acts, I said it in Romans. I probably didn't say it in 1 Corinthians, but I did say it in 2 Corinthians, and I definitely said it in Galatians, and I'm saying it again now in Ephesians. But I'm not the only one that does that. Even gospel commentators and scholars tend to do the same thing uh, when they're writing about specific books. For example, William Barclay, when he begins his commentary on Ephesians, said that Ephesians is the queen of the epistles. Coleridge said, it's the most divine composition of all mankind. That's a huge statement. Of all the divine writings in the scriptures, this is the most divine. I don't know how you would rate such a thing, but that's what he said. McKay said that it is the greatest, maturest, and most relevant work in the history of mankind. Ephesians is a book that is held in high esteem, also torn down for controversy we'll get to in, I don't know, a year and a half, but it is an incredible book. In some ways, the book of Ephesians is a really simple book. I mean, for example, there is nothing taught in the book of Ephesians that isn't also taught somewhere else in the Bible. So, so it would be easy to say about Ephesians, well, there's not a ton of original or individual things that aren't taught somewhere else. And, and it's also one of the most practical books in all of the Bible in terms of its application to us. And even in terms of outline, when I, when I was on a personal retreat just a few weeks ago, I sat down and outlined the entire book of Ephesians to try to get some preparation um, in advance of starting this series, and I spent way too long writing way too detailed of an outline, because you could really outline the book of Ephesians in just three steps. In fact, there's writers who have done this very thing, and in three steps, sit, walk, stand, Ephesians 1 through 3 is sit about how we sit in the posi- our position with God. Then Ephesians 4 through Ephesians 6 is 6 is how we walk in that, how we walk amongst one another. And then finally Ephesians 6 through the very end of chapter 6 is how we stand against the attacks of the enemy. So in many ways it can be a really simple easy to break down book. In other ways, it is one of the most complex books of doctrine that has ever been written. I mean, today we're really only going to look at verses one through two. Verses one through two say, "Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father and the Lord Jesus." That's his introduction. But do you want us to talk about complex? Look at the next sentence. Now it, it gets broken up in a lot of ways in our writing here, in its English translation. But in the Greek writing, it's a long, and you would even say, by classic Greek writing standards, they would say, that's a horrible sentence because it just keeps going and going and going. That's just terrible syntax. Why would you write like that? But the idea is that Paul is trying to show us the grandeur of the doctrine of God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he has set forth in Christ and as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven, things on earth, and in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. (sighs) Guys, we could spend years literally, of sermons just studying that. So the simplicity of the book of Ephesians also gives way to an incredible depth of doctrine. But the beauty of the doctrine, the beauty of everything that is taught to us in this book is that it is played out and intended to point to us and to bring us together in this particular gathering as the local church and say, all of this is for you. There's nothing written in the book of Ephesians that is tended, or intended, I should say, to be done alone or in isolation. Whether it be talking about family dynamics or not, the intention of everything written here is that it play out in community, specifically the church. John Stott writes this, the whole letter of Ephesians is a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty. Christian faith and Christian life, what God has done through Christ, and what we the church do in consequence. So what we're going to be doing is looking at the book of Ephesians from its purpose and its application to us, the local church. Now, one of the things that we desire to do here at Heritage when we're teaching the word is we don't want to create just a bunch of spoon-fed Christians, The last thing in the world I want to do is have a congregation of people that come here to hear the word, but when you leave here and go home to your own houses and open the Bible, you have no idea what you're reading, no comprehension for it, no framework through which to be able to interpret and understand the things that are there. Because the Bible, while it may have been written to us, the church community, it is also intended that we as individuals learn more about God and about God's plan for our lives through it. So we want to be able to give you guys continually a framework and increase your ability to read the Word of God on your own, not just coming here all the time. Does that make sense? Amen? Amen. So here's what I'm going to do today. This is going to be sort of a punchless sermon. In fact, it would be hard to really describe this as a sermon. This is more like an introduction. This is more like just a framework, it's almost like a lecture, if you will, about the book of Ephesians to give us, if you will, the framework by which we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians moving forward, amen? We good with that? It's graduation weekend, we can endure one more class, right? So here's what I wanna look at first. Number one, I wanna talk about who wrote Ephesians. The author of the book of Ephesians is a guy we've been studying for a really long time now. His name is, starts with a P, ends with an all, anyone know? Paul, good job. The, the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Ephesians. Now, if you don't know anything about the Apostle Paul, it is really important that we know this. Paul was a Jewish Pharisee, a legalist to the core a hardcore legalist. You only find approval with God through doing this and this and this and you have to keep these commandments and keep these ordinances and keep these rituals and do all of these things and that's how we connect with God. Grace, what's that? Study, learn, serve, this was Paul. And so when Jesus resurrected from the dead and his apostles were commissioned to go out in the world and spread this gospel of grace, Paul was hearing this, and remember we talked about this even last week in Galatians, sometimes the people that have the hardest time with the message of grace are the people inside our own religious communities. And again, at that time, it's, it's sort of a, a false dichotomy to look at the world through, there's the Jewish world and the Christian world what was really intended to happen, what, was, what the apostles were trying to do was to show the Jewish people that the God that they were worshiping and had been waiting for all along was Jesus. So they weren't trying to create a new faith. They were trying to bring greater revelation of Jesus through the faith they were already in. Does that make sense? And so when all of these people whose lives were built on legalism start hearing these stories of grace over and over, there was great opposition and no one opposed the grace of God more than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul seethed with anger at this gospel that was being preached. And he made it his life's work to go throughout the region, persecute, arrest, and even murder those who were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then one day as he's on his way to Damascus with letters in hand to go arrest more Christians, Jesus Christ came to him himself. The resurrected Lord appeared before Paul, knocked him off a horse, blinded him with his glory and said, Paul, what are you doing? Why are you kicking against the goad? In other words, why are you fighting with me? You are persecuting me. You're persecuting my people, but you're persecuting me. And he revealed himself to him. And Paul's answer is the answer that every single person on earth should give when they come face to face with the reality of Jesus Christ. What do you want me to do? I'm yours. I'm bowed before you. You say it, I'll do it. And Paul's entire life changed after that. He goes from the greatest persecutor of Christians to the greatest church planter in the history of Christianity and maybe the greatest preacher of the gospel that ever lived. This is who Paul was. Now, after Paul's dramatic conversion, he went through a series of missionary journeys. Paul was what we would call a pioneer missionary. Paul wasn't the kind of guy, kind of like me, who here in Medford plants a church and then stays with that church and pastors that group of people for years and years and years. Paul was different. He was a pioneer missionary. So what he would do is go into a city, always a city, he would go into the synagogues and teach and he would kind of begin to convert people, or I should say the gospel would convert people and then Paul would train these people up into a form of leadership and establish a church in that city. And that church would become a missionary hub for the areas around it. And so once Paul had leadership lifted up, he had a church established, he would then move on to other areas. And he did these in great journeys that we refer to as Paul's first, second, and third missionary journey. And Paul came to, if, to the area of Ephesus, where the Ephesian book is written to, in his second missionary journey around the 50s A.D., And there he stayed for about 18 months, and he uh, really established the church in Ephesus with some names that some of you who understand the book of Acts might remember. Remember the names Aquila and Priscilla? That's the church here. Okay, so Paul establishes this church and then moves on. Then in Paul's third missionary journey, he comes through Ephesus again, teaches more. In fact, he stays in the Ephesus area for almost three years as he's there before moving on. While he's there in Ephesus, first he goes into the synagogue and he's preaching the gospel to the Jewish people there until the opposition there is so strong that he has to leave and go somewhere else. So he went into local markets, he went into local theaters and auditoriums, libraries, anywhere that he could go and teach until that opposition grew and grew. And what he did was continue to just speak the gospel into people's lives, raise up missionaries, and he would teach every day from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. all day, just preaching the gospel to anyone that would listen. And what was the effect of his gospel? It was amazing. It was amazing. As we're going to see in just a minute, there was great paganism in that area and tons of idolatry. They would literally make idols of worship to be put into people's homes. Silversmiths and blacksmiths would make these metal idols that would go into homes and people would literally worship them. But when Paul came in and began preaching the gospel... It had such an effect on the area that the silversmiths and the metal workers in that area basically unionized together against Paul because they were saying, this guy is costing us money. His gospel message that's going forth is affecting our bottom line. That is an incredible thing. You know, if this is your thing, I I don't mean to dog this or to say that there's no place for this, but there's so many times where I've seen people doing things like Just Christians, well meaning, not intended to slam anyone, but but picketing. Whether it be like an abortion clinic or or, um, sex shops or places like that. I've seen those things happen before. We've all seen that before, have we not? But I'll tell you something the most effective thing that you can do when you see an evil in society and you want it to be eradicated is not to picket it, but to preach the gospel to it. When we were in Uganda, we started learning about the um, increase of HIV and the horrible um, sexual immorality that goes on there in Uganda. Uh, We learned, actually, that in some villages in Uganda, it's common practice, if, if if a woman is engaged to a man and she's about to marry her new husband, it's customary that the new husband's father get to sleep with her first. And those are just normal customs in some of these villages. And as a result of that sort of sexual promiscuity, there's diseases that are being spread. AIDS runs rampant. We did AIDS testing once in Uganda. We tested 63 people. Only 27 were negative. And so we were talking with this guy, a local pastor there, and just like, man, what do you do about that? How do you educate the people? What do you do to deal with this stuff? And he said, oh, it's really easy. We just tell them about Jesus. You tell somebody about Jesus, that stuff stops. That's really the book of Ephesians, honestly, Understand who you are in Christ. The behavior takes care of itself. I just gave away the end of the sermon. We should go home. Not gonna do it. Let's keep going. So this is what Paul's doing. He's saying he's preaching the gospel and the effects of the gospel in the community around him caused such turmoil that these people unionized, created a riot, and they almost murdered Paul in the auditorium there in Ephesus because their bottom line was being affected by his preaching of the gospel. Well, after Paul left... He goes on his third missionary journey, he finishes all of this, he goes back to Jerusalem and he's arrested. There he's arrested by Roman soldiers and he's to be taken from Jerusalem to Rome. If you know the story, he was put on a boat, taken across the sea, a horrible storm came, he was shipwrecked, he ends up on the island of Malta, remember that? They're standing around a fire, bad luck gets worse, he gets bit by a snake. I mean, it was just a horrible situation for Paul, but he ends up in Rome imprisoned where he's going to be tried before the Roman uh, um, magistrates, the the Roman kings, the Roman leadership. And as Paul is imprisoned in Rome, he writes this book, the letter of Ephesians from prison. Now, who was he writing to? Well, as I said before, he was writing to the people of Ephesus. It's a city in Turkey. I have a map up if we could put this up. Um, and I, but I forgot my laser and that's already washed out anyway, so that's a great map. That's a little bit better. Here, let's do this. Okay, you guys recognize all this, right? This is the boot. What's the boot? Italy, very good. Graduates out there. So so here's the boot, Macedonia, Corinth. Right here on this side right here of what's modern day Turkey, this is the city of Ephesus. That's where Ephesus was located. Now Ephesus was a really important city in this day and age. Super important. It was located on the Keister River in modern day Turkey. And the Kayser River worked its way 80 miles up into that region. It was a huge river that they used for trade. The fact that the river went so far, I mean, think of the Columbia River near Portland here, right? We were able to use that river to send huge ships up through there and use it as a big trade hub, right? Come on, you guys have been to Portland, right? Okay, so, so you understand what we're talking about. So the fact that this river was so big and so long caused the city of Ephesus to really, really grow and become a major um, uh, trade hub. That river brought massive trade into e- Ephesus. Unfortunately, that river also brought massive amounts of silt. And so, as the soil continued to work its way downriver, the depth of the river changed, the route of the river changed, and eventually dried up the city of Ephesus and ruined their trade route. In fact, the city of Ephesus is really rare because it's one of the only cities in the world that has been relocated, not once, but three times. In modern archaeological digs, you can find walls that the people built along the river where they were trying to fight back the growth of of the silt in that area. And in the end, they ended up giving up and just abandoning the entire city of Ephesus. Really strange, but once the trade dried up, the use of the city ended and they moved the whole city. The benefit of that, though, is it left behind an incredible archaeological monument for us to be able to look at today. Let's look at the next slide. You'll see some of the things that still stand here. Here is the face of a library that once existed. Now, think about this just for a moment. Don't just go, okay, it's a library. Cities have them. We're talking about the days of scrolls. So to have a place where library, a library, all these things are collected, you must be a wealthy and important city for a place like that to have something that is that hard to come by. And it's an incredible, it's not small, look at these people standing next to it, huge place. You guys on that side, I apologize, you can't see nothing, sorry, well, yeah, sorry, it's not HD, you'll live, right? So there's also, let's go to the next, show the next slide. This theater exists in Ephesus. This theater holds 24,000 people. That's massive. Um, I actually, I meant to get a sign-up sheet. Maybe we'll get it put together for next week, but I would love to be able to talk and and see. We're we're trying to put together, actually, an Apostle Paul tour as a church where we would go into Turkey, see Ephesus, walk through these areas ourselves and work our way through into Greece, finishing up in Rome and being able to follow the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And so we're gonna have sign-ups really soon to be able to see who's interested in doing such a thing. Be praying about that. It's life-changing, those kinds of trips. But here, this auditorium is incredible. Incredibly preserved 24,000 people used to gather together To watch stuff like this and, and also near it there was an arena Where they used to have the gladiator battles That you guys have seen on TV Where they would take even Christians and put them in there And force them to fight wild beasts Wild animals I mean, It was an incredible um, and disgusting Forms of entertainment that went on Let's go to the next one Also in this area It was one of the seven ancient wonders Of the world It was the temple dedicated to Artemis, or also referred to as Diana. The temple Artemis was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world because of its grandeur and its scale. Now, not a whole lot is left of it right here, but these columns are amazing. And artists and architects have been able to go and look through the foundation and some of the stuff that's there and come up with an idea that lets us kind of see what it would have looked like in the day. Can you go to the next slide? A massive temple. And the goddess Artemis was the goddess of like wild animals and all these other things, but she was also the goddess of fertility. In fact, here's a statue of her right here, and as strange as that is, I'm not trying to be gross, but it was considered the multi-breasted god. She was the goddess of life, and as a result, they would have, they called them temple workers. They were temple prostitutes, hundreds of them, that would work in the temple participating in horrible just sexual orgies and just disgusting religious practices that went on in the temple as a form of worship that's gross let's get rid of that back to the slide everybody say that's gross Gross. I, I agree next slide just back to Ephesians yay now so that's some of the culture that was going on in in there now it's a big trade city So just as it is in days today, when you have a major trade hub like that, you're always going to have sort of a a multi-ethnic and multinational, just a mixing pot of people. I mean, even in our country alone, think of Seattle, think of San Francisco, and you see that there's all sorts of different types of people with different types of background that are drawn there because of the trade that goes on. So it's a very unique culture, but it also was a very pluralistic culture, which tends to happen as well. What, what I mean is, you've got people from different places with different backgrounds, different religious practices, all coming to the same place, and it becomes sort of a melting pot of all sorts of religion. Artemis, as I mentioned before, um, there was, that, that was probably or definitely the biggest. I mean, that temple dominated the city of Ephesus. There was a whole month of the year named after her. They had a whole month of Olympic games that were dedicated to her um, and all these things. But there were still tons of other um, cults. Actually, that Artemis also. There was so much treasure that was brought into that temple, it became the bank for most of the Roman Empire. The wealth stored in that temple was unbelievable. But there were others to a whole litany of other gods from Greek worship, even all the way into black magic and witchcraft. And the theme of the culture at that time was religious tolerance. Sound familiar? Mixing pot of people from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different faith, lots of different religions. Religious tolerance was what was there. So imagine the reaction when Paul comes in and says all those religions are wrong, Jesus is the only one. You begin to understand why he shook that city up so much. Now, the church in Ephesus that Paul created was a pretty strong one, at least in its inception. Some of you guys may remember in the book of Revelation, there are these letters to the different churches that are written and given, if you will, by Jesus himself. One is written to the church in Ephesus. I've got the scripture here for you. Look what he says about it. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and are found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have, said this again, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at the beginning. So at the time Paul writes this letter, the church is only five years old. And we can tell even from Jesus' words himself that the church, at least in its inception, was doing powerful works, exposing false doctrine, works of labor and gospel love for one another. They were known for their love of God and one another. And in fact, this letter, uh, not not Jesus' letter here, but the letter of Ephesians that Paul writes is one of the only letters in the Bible that was written for no real occasion. What I mean by that is, there wasn't some major threat or major fallout or major drama that necessitated Paul to write them, other than the fact he loved them, he had planted that church, and he wanted to encourage them and help them to grow. Nevertheless, the region they lived in did pose significant challenges for growing Christians in discipleship. For example, new converts often still held to those old paganistic rituals. So many people who were still practicing Christianity had grown up in such paganistic worship styles that they had a hard time letting go of the idols. And so we know from history and from other writings that there would be those who had converted to Christianity but still had idols for people like Artemis and others inside their homes. I mean, imagine that. Someone got saved and the pagan stuff they've been doing all their lives isn't easy to let go of? Weird, huh? This is going on in that time. Secondly, immoral living was hard to shake. I mean... When your worship that you're used to includes prostitute, it's pr- prostitutes, it's probably going to make sexual immorality and things like that in your culture rather commonplace, right? And so getting people to change the way they looked at things like sex, for example, was a major challenge for Paul. That's why Christian living is such a major theme in the book of Ephesians. And then one other thing among others is just the tension of life with other believers, You've got people from all different backgrounds, from all different cultures, with all different stories, trying to come together in the church and begin to learn together to live a completely different life. And so there's challenges in that. So there's things in Ephesians that Paul writes where he's encouraging them to have certain order, how to walk with one another, how to love one another, how to show grace for one another, how to structure the church because there's natural tension. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you know this. If you're new, you're gonna figure this out soon. So I should just tell you, Christians, we're weird. The Bible says so, that's not just me. The Bible says that Christians are what? Peculiar people. And in our culture or cultures like this, where you have independent people who, at least compared to the standards of the world, are wealthy and you try to put them together and change the way they live, there's going to be tension. There's going to be headbutting. You're gonna figure that out in this room just as much. And so Paul writes the book of Ephesians to encourage us that we would continue in our love for Jesus and our love for one another. But now, and this is where we'll really conclude and spend the last little portion of our time. Paul's not writing the book of Ephesians just to people in Ephesus in general. It wasn't a letter that was intended to be hung up in the public square to say, hey, everyone in Ephesus, you should read this. It's an exclusive letter. It's only written to a select group of people. It's only written to the saints. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He only wrote it to the saints. Now, if saints meant then what we think of saints now... We even as normal church people wouldn't think of that as being written to us. We would think of it's only some people in this higher, uh, th- this higher level or hierarchy of Christianity that would receive this. So like the Pope, Billy Graham, those kind of guys, it's written to them. I'm not a saint, I'm just a normal guy. And so it's really not written to me. That's the way we would think of it. Because saints to us is like a spiritual superhero, right? Right? I mean, even in the Catholic church, the steps that you have to go through to be labeled a saint even includes that you have to have performed a verifiable miracle. So a saint today, spiritual superhero. But saint in that day didn't mean even close to that. You know what saint really just meant? Different. Separated, set apart for a specific purpose. Literally, the people of God set aside by God for the purposes of God. That was a saint, And so if you have been saved and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we refer to that as we are being what? Sanctified, which literally means what? Set apart. So when Paul writes to the saints, he's writing to the church. And again, think about it a second. He is referring to them as saints, as sanctified, as set apart, and as faithful people in Christ Jesus. That's quite a description. I would imagine if you went to anyone in the community around here and you went to tell them about yourself, I bet no one in this room would describe themselves as a saint to the people that they're talking to. Would you? Would you say, faithful follower of God? Would you say that I'm a saint before God? I don't think you would. In fact, let's think through something for just a minute. You guys are gonna spend some time doing this in your huddle group tonight. Imagine this. You just got a new job you're working in a new place, and you get on an elevator, you're going to work the first day, and someone hops onto the elevator. They recognize you as the new employee that's just come to work there. And so they introduce themselves to you. Hey, I'm Steve. I'm an accounting. Whatever. Who are you? What would your answer be? Hello, I am blank. How would you answer that? It's a question of identity. Who are you? How would you describe yourself to someone else? What are the things that define who you are? Hello, I am this. Now, there's lots of ways you can answer that. There's lots of places that we find our identity. So, for example, we can talk about our career and what it is that we do. In fact, that's probably the most common answer that a lot of us, especially in the work world, do to this day. Is it not? Hey, tell me about you. Uh, I'm a pastor. I'm an engineer. I'm a lawyer. We make our career, the thing that we do for a living, the work that we do in the world around us, a major part of our identity, do we not? But is that who you are? Is that what defines you? Because what happens if you lose that? What happens if you are a professional athlete, for example, and you lose the ability to do that? I mean, have you read some of the articles? Look, I'm a die hard Tar Heel fan, and Michael Jordan is a hero of mine growing up. But have you read some of the heartbreaking articles and interviews with him about how he's coping with life now that he's not in the spotlight playing basketball anymore? He seems bitter and angry and like he's just sort of lost. And I don't think that's just because he's the owner of that Charlotte team that's so bad. I think it's the fact that he just, he's lost his identity. And so, what do you do? If your identity is based in what you do and you lose the ability to do that, or one day when you retire, what happens? You're gonna have a crisis of identity? How would you answer that? What about relationships with others? We can do that. I, I'm married, I'm single. I'm a mother, I'm a father. We can do that, we can make our identity um, really how we relate with other people. And so you can do that, but there's problems with that too. What happens when people are taken from you? I I know my mom could tell you about this. She grew up her whole life um, dreaming of being a Christian mother and a Christian wife. And that dream came true. She became a Christian mother. She became a Christian wife. She was raising Christian kids. Everyone was there. And then when my father had an affair, left the family, abandoned everyone, didn't talk to anyone, cut her off financially, when all that stuff happened, at the same time, I was off getting married myself, and my sister was off to college. And so just like that, she went from having all of that stuff, her whole identity and all of that, to all alone in her home. And it wrecked her. It was as if her entire identity was removed. In other situations, I've talked with couples all the time who who have child-centered marriages, and that might work great while you have children at home, but the goal is to get them out, amen? So then what do you do? Suddenly your identity's gone and people have issues, or divorces, or death, So you can't make your identity just someone else. That's not dependable or doesn't last. There's hobbies or interests. Who are you? I'm a fisherman. I'm a runner. I'm a golfer. I'm a whatever the case may be. But even those things aren't permanent and certainly not anything deep enough to hold on to that, and especially what happens when you lose the ability to do that. But there's life stages. Right now, I'm a student I'm a graduate, I'm a college student, you can make those things your identity, but what you end up doing is every time a transition comes in life, you end up with this crisis of identity. Who will I be now? What am I gonna be moving forward? What is it gonna look like in the next stage? Because it's not just an issue of what you're gonna do, your entire identity has been shaped. And look, let's be honest, it doesn't take much watching the E! Network or Hollywood Tonight or any of those things to see that there are a lot of people in the world today that are struggling with that transition from young into old, amen? Amen. Anybody investing in plastic in here? You're making a fortune. I mean, have you seen the grotesque things that some people have done to themselves late into life trying to prevent their identity from going to young and glamorous and beautiful into old? Those are identity crises. And then finally, at least for our purposes today, your identity can just be wrapped up in baggage just from your history. Um, I'm a loser. I'm ugly. I'm depressed. I'm wounded. I'm hurt. I'm isolated. I'm alone. I'm, a, I'm an abuse victim. I'm an addict. And a lot of people wrap their identity up in those things. And those things can be so consuming in your life at times. I totally understand why you would do that, but who wants that? Who wants that to be the answer to I am blank? And the question of who you are, I am blank, is incredibly important. And not just because of describing who you are, but your identity is going to determine what you do and where you go from here. When I was, just about a year ago, I started working out, I've told you guys before, with Coach Konechny, who's part of our church here, and um, once he got me through the intro phase of working out, he started to really beat on me really good, and it started to hurt And so the idea of going from like this stagnant life into working out all the time became really difficult. And when you're sore from a workout the day before and you need to do something, God forbid it be running. Somehow I've turned into a runner. And I don't know why, because I gotta tell you, I hate running. Running for me is a hour-long argument. (laughs) It is, I'm running this is far enough, just stop, turn around, shut up, you pansy. just keep going. I mean, it's just this constant argument. I have to have music playing in my ear to drown out my own voices, okay? That's running for me. And I talked to a friend of mine one time about like, how do you do that? How do you keep going and all this kind of stuff? And their answer was really interesting. They said, I just tell myself over and over, I'm an athlete, that's what I do. I'm an athlete, I've been an athlete, I want to be an athlete, this is what athletes do. And so even that right there, making your identity the fact that you're an athlete, you're a runner, whatever the case, that drives you in what you do. When I was in college, I was just a lazy college kid. So on Saturday mornings, I slept in for a long, long time. Morning for me started around one in the afternoon. I'm not a morning person. Not at all. I would love to sleep late every day and stay up late. But you know what happened? Things changed. And part of my identity, at least, shifted when I became a pastor and when I got into fly fishing, to be quite honest with you. Because if you're a fisherman and you decide to get up midday, you're going to be a really bad fisherman. Okay? And as a pastor, what you end up finding out is a lot of the appointments that you can make with people are usually before work. You end up having to have time with the Lord before the busyness of the day comes, all those sorts of things. So even though in college, I was this sort of lazy sleep-in guy, once things in my life begin to change and my identity, if you will, shifted, it affected the way I behave. And now I get up stupid early. If young Jeff knew how early old Jeff gets up, he would probably do something different for a living out of just fear. So your identity determines who you are, what you do, and where you're going. So how would you identify yourself? I am what? Fortunately for us, the Bible tells us who we are. The scriptures tell us in great detail everything we need to know about who we are. It says, first of all, that we are recipients of revelation. In other words, this letter may have been written to the people of Ephesus, but it's written to us, amen? God has revealed himself to us through his holy word. And the fact that we are here is because we are recipients of God's word and we desire to study God's word because in it, God has revealed himself and his will for our lives to us through these scriptures. We are also honored but humble honored but humble, and so here's what I mean. Even in the very book of Genesis, from the very beginning, you see that God has created man, apart from what many people in Oregon would say, in a position higher than any other created being on earth, of more importance than the animals, than the trees, than the mountains, than any of those things. God has given man dominion over those things, but he has very clearly put man beneath himself. So God may be above all creation here, but we are below who? God. And so the Bible teaches us of our place in these things, that that we may be more gifted, we may be really talented, we may may be amazing people, but we are to be submitted to and subservient to the king of all creation, God himself. But but again, honored. It's important that we should too realize that we are a prized creation of God and I think he desires that we know how much we're loved and appreciated or, or, or delighted in. The Bible also teaches us that we're image bearers. From the very beginning that we are created in the image of God. And what that means is is that we are intended to reflect something of God's glory and God's persona in the world around us. So, as the scriptures say when we give a glass of cold water to a child and people are like that's really kind of you to do that thank you our response should be hey I'm just doing what the father does what God does that's what Jesus did as he walked the earth that's supposed to be our role that as we serve other people we're teaching people about God you feed the homeless or you feed the hungry man that's really great of you I'm glad you're doing that and we go no that's not me I'm doing this because this is what God does look to him this is the idea. We are image bearers of God. In the same way that a mirror reflects who we are when we look into it, people should look at us and it should reflect something of God's character. The problem is this the Bible also teaches us we're broken. We're broken mirrors. We do not adequately or faithfully or properly reflect God's character, nature, or any of those things to the world around us the way we are designed we're broken. And what do we just say? Your identity determines where you go. And the fact that we are broken and have been rebellious against God, our sin has isolated him, us from him, and it has set us on a trajectory of eternity apart from God. Our brokenness damns us These are messages that caused Paul a lot of trouble when he preached them in Ephesus. And this is a message that causes us a lot of trouble when we preach it today. Amen. But apart from God and because of our sin, every single person's sin, our identity as broken, rebellious sinners before God destines us for hell. That's just the truth. But here's the good news. There's hope in a new identity. That's what the scriptures teach. As we move forward in the book of Ephesians, we're going to see a phrase come up over and over and over. In Christ, in Christ, in Him, through Christ, in Him. Just read that first chapter that I was reading through earlier. You'll see it come up many, many times. What the Bible means when it says that we are in Him, it means that for those who have put their faith in Jesus... Allowed the redemptive work at the cross to cover their sin and offer them forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The scriptures say that you are now in Him. And what it means is your identity is changed. When God looks at you, you're no longer broken and fallen, you are righteous and holy. When God looks at you and you're in Jesus, you're no longer separated and isolated, you are drawn in and adopted. When God sees you now in Jesus, you are no longer a rebellious, I want to be my own God, but you are a son of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. This is the reality of the book of Ephesians. And if you don't know this, if you're not in Christ, you've got to understand what the scriptures teach you about your identity and your destination moving forward because it makes all the difference in the world but at the same time and by the same token if you're here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ you've studied Ephesians a million times you've grown up in the church you don't even remember a time that you weren't with Jesus then this is still an important book for you because to understand our identity in Christ makes all the difference let me explain it to you this way Chapters 1, 2, and 3, as we study through the book of Ephesians, are going to lay it out really clearly. Who we are in him, what we have in him, what he's done for us, our standing in him, all of those things. Our position and identity in Christ is going to be the, fir- the, the main theme of the first part of our study of the book of Ephesians. And the reason it's so important is because if you don't know who you are in Jesus, you will never do the things that come after that. Because Ephesians 5 is going to say, hey husbands, your wife, no matter what she does, whether she deserves it or not, die. Wives, your husband's an idiot, die. Submit to one another, serve one another, give your lives away to one another. The world would never, ever say these things. The world says, go out there and find yourself, find your identity, find your own life. The scriptures say, come and die. And so we would look at this and go, why? This is the only life I get. You want me to throw this away to serve someone else? Are you foolish? We're only here for so long. We need to go get our own life. But then when you understand who you are in Christ, what he's done for you, and the direction that your new identity in Jesus has set you on, the trajectory towards eternal life in him, it gives you the ability to do the things that Scripture calls you to do. And frankly, the scripture and Paul's writing in particular are very clear that you shouldn't even try to do those things until you have that new identity in Christ. The book of Colossians lays this out really, really well. Colossians, which is actually the letter that was written right before the letter of Ephesians, Paul writes in the first two chapters all the way through about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, how we are buried with him in baptism, how our identity is now changed because we're in Christ. And then in the book of Colossians, when he gets to chapter three, verse one, he says, Now, if you've been raised with Christ... Then seek the things that are above. And from then on, the letter goes into I want you to live like this. This is how you behave with one another. This is how you serve your family. Here's all the things you do. But the very way that he writes it, when he says, If you've been raised with Christ, then do this, what he means is if you're not in Jesus, if your identity is not set in him, we can't even have this discussion. You're not ready you'll never do the things that the gospel calls you to do because you'll still be so caught up in yourself. And then God forbid if you actually do do some of those things, you'll be so self-righteous, you'll have no need for Jesus in the first place. Your identity in Jesus is what determines where you are moving forward. And so this is what we're doing. And this next season, we're going to be looking through this very issue. Who am I? or specifically because we're the church gathered together, let's say it this way, who are we? What has God done for us? What has God blessed us with? What is it that he's poured into us? And then in light of our identity, what does it look like to actually become and be the people God has called us to be? And if we'll look through that lesson, through that lens where the gospel of Jesus is our foundation, belief in his word and his revelation moving forward, We're going to have a great time, and God's going to build a great church. But if you refuse these things, you need to understand, I'm not going to pull punches here. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Apart from an identity in Christ, you're going nowhere. And you're going to spend the rest of your life continuing to find your identity in thing after thing after thing after thing after thing that is always going to let you down. Nothing will ever be enough. Nothing will ever last long enough. Everything will let you down, and you will waste your entire life looking for that next thing only to find it doesn't exist apart from Christ. And that's exhausting and depressing and really scary. Hell is real. It's real. It's not a happy place. But there is life in Jesus. And so if you are not in him, if you're not sure you're in him, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't care how long you've been in church, if you cannot answer with total assurity, who am I? I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. If you cannot with assurity answer that question, then we need to talk. There's people that will be available in the back to pray with you and to be able to talk with you to help you answer that very question. It's the most crucial question you will ever answer and it's the only one that will matter on that great day. And so I'm urging you, die to self, reject that old identity, come to Jesus, be part of the Christian community here or somewhere, wherever it is that you might live and find your identity in Christ and allow Christ's spirit to work through you. He will change you, he will lead you and he will mold you into a vessel of his glory. Because if you're not in him, I urge you, the letter, it starts out in verse two, grace to you and peace from God. You will never find peace anywhere else. You will look for it all your life And the end result will always be tears. May you come to Jesus. And may our time in Ephesians grow a love for God. And for the rest of us, may we humble ourselves. May we be teachable. Maybe that letter that Jesus wrote to the people of Ephesus is a letter to us. Hey, Heritage, remember the love that you began with? Hey, Christian, remember the day that I saved you and you were so on fire and you loved me so much? Well, stuff's gotten the way. And so I'm calling you. Return. Come back to the first love, to the works that you were doing before and let my word refine you. the Spirit can do that. And that can be an amazing thing too, amen? So you have homework. I want you this week, if you're on a Bible reading plan, this could be a busy reading week for you. If you're not, I got something for you. I want you this week to just read the book of Ephesians as many times as you can. If you can get up in the morning and read it each day, It should take you like 30 to 40 minutes to read through the entire book of Ephesians, if that. So every day, through that lens, here's who I am in Christ, and here's what life looks like for those who are in Christ. That's the lens that we're gonna be looking for in this season. So that's our introduction to the book of Ephesians. We'll actually study it starting next week, amen? Will you stand with me? And join me in this prayer, if you would. God, will you prepare our hearts for what you have for us moving forward? God, I pray that this would be a special season for this church as we study the book of Ephesians. Will you teach us, mold us, and work through us? I pray, God, that we would be particularly attentive to your word, sensitive to the leanings and promptings of your spirit. I pray you would remind us anew of who we are in you, what we have in you, what you have done for us, the gift of relationship and fellowship with one another. And I pray, God, that you would guide, bless, and lead us as we move forward learning how to just walk this thing out in our lives. And God, we are broken vessels of your grace. We are broken image bearers. But may your spirit and your word refine us. May we come out of this series in Ephesians looking more like you and reflecting your glory to a greater and greater degree than today as we begin it. That's our prayer, Lord. Will you have your way with this church? In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Do your homework, summer school. God bless you guys. I love you. We'll see you Wednesday night.